Proctor with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. The keynote speakers have been chosen. This year, Lambda Days will be opened by Philip Wadler. Mary Sheeran will open day two, and the conference will end on a high note with a talk by Philine Hermans. For more information and to register, visit www.lambdadays.org. Bob2018 is in Berlin on February 23rd of 2018. Bob is a developer conference on what's best in software development. Naturally, it has a strong focus on functional programming. For more information and to register, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. And Bob is immediately followed by Closure D on February 24th, also in Berlin. More information on Closure D can be found at closured.de. The cross-registration discounts for Bob and Closure D are available. Comcast Labs Connect Functional Programming Conference will be taking place Friday, March 9th in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In this one-day event, speakers will talk about how they use functional programming to build complex modern systems. New developments in type systems, verification, and compilation are no longer purely academic, but are being driven by practical experience at a large scale. For more information and to register, visit comcastlabconnectfp.comcast.com. Michael Nygaard will be hosting a five-day workshop, Monolith to Microservices, March 12th to the 16th in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. You will learn how to extract microservices out of a monolithic, database-backed application while keeping the whole application available the whole time. For more information and to register, visit n6consulting.com slash workshop slash monolith dash two dash microservices. Develop your Erlang, Elixir, and Beam skills at Codebeam SF, formerly Erlang Factory San Francisco. Codebeam SF will be taking place March 15th and 16th, with training taking place on the 12th through the 14th of March, as well as the 19th through the 21st of March. 35 top-notch speakers and talks are just added, and early bird tickets are available at codesync.global. Lambda Squared has been announced. Lambda Squared is a single-day, single-track functional programming conference held in Knoxville, Tennessee on March 30th. For more information and to register, visit www.lambda-squared.com. The Midlands Graduate School in the Foundations of Computer Science provides an intensive course of lectures on the mathematical foundations of computing. It is a collaboration between researchers at the University of Birmingham, Leicester, Nottingham, and Sheffield, and has run annually since 1999. The lectures are aimed at PhD students, typically in their first or second year of study, but the school is open to anyone who is interested and has increasingly seen participation from industry, for example. They welcome participants from all over the world. MGS 2018 is going to be held in Nottingham, UK, the 9th to the 13th of April, hosted by the School of Computer Science at the University of Nottingham. Eight courses are going to be given, three introductory ones and five advanced. The students participate in all of the introductory courses and choose additional options from the advanced courses. The link is a bit long, so for more information, visit www.functionalgeekery.com slash MGS 2018 and it will redirect you to the appropriate site. AlexaConf EU will be taking place April 16th and 17th in Warsaw, Poland. Check out all the Elixir talks at AlexaConf EU, the premier Elixir conference in Europe. Early bird tickets are available, as well as tickets for a day of training on April 18th. For more information and to register, visit www.alexaconf.eu. 
BuzzConf will be taking place Thursday, 26th of April, with workshops on Friday, April 27th in Buenos Aires, Argentina. BuzzConf is a conference by developers for developers that explores the new horizons in computer science, such as functional programming, distributed systems, big data, machine learning, and other interdisciplinary areas and brings them to a bigger audience. Call for presentations closes Monday, March 5th, and any call related to functional programming, distributed systems, databases, or machine learning is welcomed. For more information, Andrea Sturr, visit buzzconf.org. Monadic Party is a five-day-long Haskell summer school in Poznan, Poland, taking place June 11th through the 15th. They will have two tracks, one for programmers that aren't experienced in Haskell and would like to learn it from the basic concepts, and the other track is for people already familiar with the language and will present a selection of talks and workshops on a variety of topics. Their speakers include Julie Moranuki, who wrote Haskell Programming from First Principles, Chris Martin, the co-author of an upcoming Joy of Haskell, a GHC contributor, Krzysztof Gogolewski, Carter Schoenwald, Marcin Chomoltuski, and Michal Kowalitz. They have an open call for speakers and are looking for people who want to lead a series of lectures or workshops. Check them out at monadic.party. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Lisa Passing. Lisa, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Lisa. I'm like, talking to you from lovely Berlin, where it's cold outside right now and not very comfortable. I'm a web developer, full stack. I started, as so many people did, with making like PHP and WordPress websites, but then getting more into the front end of things and JavaScript. I then discovered Clojure for myself, and with that, the joy of, of functional programming. And recently, so over the last year, I also got introduced to Rust and taught myself some Rust. And yeah, the question that people were asking me is like, you were so much into like functional programming stuff like two years ago. Why not like the systems level thing? And now I can say, why? Rust can be pretty functional if you want it to be. And I guess this is why we're here to talk about. Yeah, because I saw you were giving a presentation probably in a couple days as this comes out at Lambda Days. So I wanted to reach out. And as I mentioned in the pre-call, we've had a couple people talk about Rust. And I've heard the history of Rust being inspired from some of the stuff that Haskell and OCaml has done and proved out. And like, it'd be nice if we had some of that stuff in systems yeah. level and some of that safety and type checking and all that kind of stuff. But haven't had too many people do too much with functional Rust. It's more about they played with Rust and they've taken some of their functional ideas. So definitely get into that. But you start with PHP, WordPress, you do some JavaScript and some other front end stuff. 
And then what made you get into Clojure since you said you did some Clojure as well? What was the jump that took you from WordPress first and PHP, I guess, in general, to the other front-end stuff and then deciding to look into Clojure before you started to get into Rust? The jump from from PHP to more front-endy things happened, I would say, naturally, as like I also needed to develop like WordPress themes and like getting getting more and more into how to look my front end look good and how to make it performant and then how to make it dynamic and then it's just like and then like the whole the whole node thing started out and it's like okay I can drop PHP and can do everything in JavaScript which was really cool but then again until a couple of years ago JavaScript itself was not really I would say like people didn't recognize it as a programming language that it is and it's, it has grown a lot. If you look at the JavaScript that I wrote last week, it looks nothing like the JavaScript like people would write like four years ago, and it's it's really cool. But then, how did I get into into closure? And this it didn't happen. I don't know from my usual like working and reading, and it's like oh, I should check this out. Closure happened entirely from like people that I knew in the community, actually that I knew from the Ruby community in Berlin, who simply disappeared. And I was like, where would like. I used to see you every month at the meetup. Where are you? And it turns out they've gone to the closure meetup and not to the Ruby meetup anymore. It's like, what is this closure thing? I've never heard of it. And they were like, yeah, it's really cool. It's like, it's a functional programming language and it's like so much cooler than object-oriented Ruby. I'm like, okay. So my, so my Ruby is okay. I've never did super serious stuff with it. So I'm like, hmm. Like, I heard some people say you can do functional things with JavaScript, but then again, it's like, you can, but most of people don't. So I'm like, okay, so this closure thing that you're so, you're so obsessed about with, teach me. And what they did was the best idea that they could have had is like organize a closure bridge workshop in Berlin so that me and like, I don't know, 20 or 30 other people could just like hands on learn closure. And at first I thought it was like, oh, okay. I think I get it, but I, I didn't get it until later. I I understood that I didn't really get it, and then I got it. And I was like, okay, this is kind of really cool, and I should do more of this. Yeah, and the cool thing about Clojure, if you're coming from a front end like perspective, is that you have Clojure Script, so you can do everything that you did before in the browser with cool things, but in just a nice Clojurey way. So that was the thing I'm still like very much enjoying. And now I forgot the. The first part of the question, I think. So this now, now we're in closure land and functional programming land. And then that's where it was getting. We were kind of setting that foundation of just how you got into it. And if it was front end and you just saw some other people doing closure script or if it was closure. So it sounds like you did a little bit of Ruby. What other languages kind of, if any, kind of helped set that way that said, oh, maybe I go pick up closure because if you've picked up JavaScript and front-end stuff and maybe some other, again, JavaScript is kind of the wild, wild west and even more so, no rules applied five, ten years ago when you're getting people trying like, okay, well, this is kind of good, kind of bad, let's use CoffeeScript, let's write your own language that compiles into JavaScript. We're trying out all these things to see what works. We're writing our own module system. We're doing a bunch of this stuff. When you're going through that, were there other things that you were playing with from originally PHP and JavaScript, were there other backend stuff you'd have to do before Node and before it started being able to be a legitimate tool on the backend? Kind of setting the stage of what did you looked at before 
if you said you did some object-oriented Ruby, you're like, I did it. And then you get into Clojure. What was some of that stuff that set that foundation? And then when you went to Clojure, you said you thought you got it, but you didn't. And then it finally clicked. So what were some of those things that you brought before to Clojure that either helped you or hindered you? I think that the helping and hindering goes hand in hand. Because I do think that the more things you know beforehand kind of like makes you, like on the abstract level, makes you understand certain things easier because they're the opposite or like just like completely different. And then I sometimes think like, oh, if I had just not known these things before, like completely not, I would have just like, like, okay, Clojure does it this way. Okay, yeah, sure. I do it this way then. Which is also something that we coached at Clojure Bridge like a couple of times now. And there's also some people come and they have never programmed before ever. And then you show them, okay, this is how you write a function. I was like, okay. And this is how you like put functions together and make your own. It's like, okay. I was like, and you, you don't have any questions about this? Like, no. Right. It's like, this is the only thing that they know. If they only know functions, they take something, they return something, and then you like stack them together. There's like no questions asked. I was like, damn, I wish I would have just like this mind of like, okay, functions, cool. So yeah, I came from a little bit of Ruby and backend stuff in the beginning. I didn't do a lot of back-end, back-end stuff, aside from, like, my early PHP WordPress work. I've dabbled with Lua for some time because I thought it had some... Because it's so tiny and so interesting, it was like, oh, it's interesting that you can make a tiny language that works just like that. But then again, like, Lua is this, like, special case that, like, a lot of people have never really touched, and it's also like, you can't do a lot of things, but still you can do everything you want, basically, and it's like, ah, weird. Usually when I learn new programming languages, it is to like make little video games, which is kind of like my, my hobby. And like, I made, I made games in, in JavaScript, in Verbi, and in Lua, and also in Clojure and Clojure Script then, and then also in Rust. And this is also like my little, the thing that I do is it's like, oh, there's this new language that sort of looks interesting to me, or that somebody recommended to me, or should I write a game in it? Maybe. Yeah. So it's like 2D thing with just like, I don't know, something shoots something and something evades something. So this is like where I get a lot of like exposure to, to programming aside from like web stuff. And that's what I was wondering is some people are the little bit of language geeks. So they'll go off and play and experiment with, they may not know it deep, but they're like, okay, let me see a little bit about what this is about. And I'll go do some basic stuff with it. So it doesn't take much to sell. It's like if you said you were like, people are at the Ruby group and they disappear and like, oh, closure. And that's kind of why I was wondering, was that the language geek side of you that said, huh, okay, there could be something interesting and it doesn't take much to convince you or if it's because there's also the type of people who go deep in a language, go hard, and it takes a lot to convince them. So I was wondering kind of what helped prompt that jump into taking a look at closure and the different paradigm. Was it just functional? It's like, oh, functional. Okay, I've heard about that and jump in. So I was trying to set some of that background of, how hard of a convincing that was when people said, oh, we've been going to this thing called closure. I guess I'm like pretty easily convinced if it comes to that. So this is like, oh, check out this language. They have this super weird concept. And I was like, oh, tell me all about it. It's like, maybe I I look into it, but yeah, I do think so. And like at first I did not consider myself a language nerd, but now other people do call me a language nerd. I was like, huh, I guess I am now. So that went unexpectedly, but yeah. And then you start doing closure. Was that just something you were doing side projects or did you actually start being able to do some serious work in it? You said one of your things is, can I put a game in this? 
after you say you went to the closure bridge and you thought you got it, you later find out you, now you really get it. What was in that period of working with closure and what did that look like? Was that just a bunch of side projects? Did you manage to find a job where you were doing some other stuff, but you sneak closure in as your own personal tool chain or what was that evolution in closure that took you? There's some closure scripts, so potentially closure script on the front end still. Did you maintain front end stuff and start using closure script? Did you shift a little bit more back end work? Or was it just other play programs that you were involved with that helped set that foundation? That's also a good question. So I, I would have loved to take on a closure or closure script job, but there are not that many, sadly. Also, like not in Berlin. There's, there's a couple of remote, but not like here in Berlin. So for the first year, yeah, I think about the first year or so, it was like hobby projects, little games that I made. And then also I got into like doing not just games, but more like artsy and generative artsy stuff that runs in the browser. And I was like, oh yeah, like Clojure is really good at, you have just and at some point like a list of things or like a vector of things. And you just like, I don't know, I just like throw certain algorithmic functions at them. And I know that they all work individually. And then I see what comes out in the end. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like me playing with, with code that I actually wrote. But then the combination surprises myself. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And I think somewhere somewhere along the way of like just toying with it, I just learned a bunch. Especially so what really like my closure click moment was like truly understanding and like my mind grasping what the codus data thing is actually like. It's like what power it gives you. Because of course it's like, oh yeah, and you know, you can like code is just data and data is code. It's like this doesn't tell me anything. But then I wrote together with a friend we wrote a game and then we we started like throwing around functions as parameters to like pro- like advance the the game and the story and it's just like I didn't even know this was working and then we were like uh, doing just like evaluating things in like weird places I'm like how like and I, I he was way more advanced than I was and I was like I don't I don't understand how this works like how is this possible and then and they said this is code is data I was like oh my god <laughs> I think I have it now. And yeah, so this was really cool. And yeah, sadly, this didn't work out in a job, job wise for me yet. I would have loved to sneak in some stuff, but it's hard to sneak a new language into a very conservative stack sometimes when you also like in small teams when everybody needs to be like able to handle everything. And I was literally the only person in the entire engineering department who was like interested in closure. I was like, okay. I guess that's not going to happen here. So I'm like, hmm, I guess it's a hobby for now, but well. Yeah, and I know sometimes you can be lucky enough that you can just sneak it into your own personal tool chain kind of stuff. You're like, well, okay, I need to do this thing. Now that I've got it, I could write this as a JavaScript command line application, or I could just pull in closure to do something, or potentially now it's like, I need this small little tool that is just something that I can knock out in 30 minutes to help me save some time and potentially even rust now kind of thing. Like, okay, I need to do this. Nobody cares how I get this done. This isn't production code. This is just more, I need to, like, I've got this log file from the server and I need to essentially split it or I need to cut the CSV. I need to reformat and do some parsing and extract this stuff out. Okay, here's a small little program. So that's what I was wondering. Then I guess with that is... As you start learning these lessons, before you pick up 
and start being exposed to Rust. You mentioned that the JavaScript you wrote yesterday looks a lot different than the JavaScript you wrote four years ago. What things were you picking up that were some of these lessons you were starting to take away back into your day-to-day work? The reason I ask is some of those probably are some of those same lessons that you probably applied going forward that appealed about Rust. So what were some of those principles that you said, okay, Clojure taught me this, this is a good thing, regardless of the language, and now I want to take those ideas. Some people say take immutability, some people understand bigger things about, as you said, passing functions around everywhere. What were some of those principles and foundations that you started to appreciate and fold back into your work and the languages you were doing day to day? And we'll get into how those things applied going forward to Rust as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, before I did exposure, that I never really paid attention to was like state and everything that comes with it. So like in object-oriented programming, it's quite quite natural. It's like, okay, you have you have an object and then this keeps your state, like your object state. And then in, in JavaScript, it's kind of like all over the place if you don't, like, don't watch it carefully. And I think in Clojure with the enforced immutability of things, which is something that I think is like, yes, it needs to be enforced. Otherwise, I know I get lazy and then I just do things all over the place. So that was really like, okay, you have some state somewhere and other things are like, they're immutable and you have to know exactly when you change something where. And this gives you like the certainty that your code will work if you keep things in mind like this. Also like pure functions. So it's like, okay. I look at my code and my functions is like, okay, why like kind of like not do this thing here and then like extract another like pure function. It's like, okay, write a test. And it's just like, this is so cool. And I want this to be in every project that I can have certainty and confidence that things work the way they're supposed to work. So I do take a lot of these things back into to JavaScript. And also like sometimes in, into like Ruby code that I wrote like a week ago or something. I was like, oh yeah, I can just do this thing. It's like, oh wait. This is like very, it's very ugly Ruby, but I think it's kind of like pretty functional Ruby. <laughs> so like, yeah, it's kind of like probably also destroying my code overall because I just get mixed up sometimes and just, or maybe I shouldn't code after 10 PM. So there are definitely, I think a lot of the functional, the main ideas behind the, the paradigm can be applied to any language, which is also like what I talk about in Rust, or like in my Rust talk next week or in whenever it is. And this is something that I try to incorporate into other things and other projects and other code in other languages. I just think it makes like things also more readable. You can be certain that things work the way they work and it looks good. I was like, ah, perfect. And then you spend your time in Clojure, yeah, a little bit of tooling and then the front end with Clojure script. What put Rust on the radar? Was that just a being the language nerd, language geek, and deciding you wanted to take a look at this? Or was there some need about a systems-level software that made you pick Rust because you actually needed to do some of that stuff? What was the transition going from Rust and what put that on your radar and help you decide to pick it up? So once again, funnily, Rust popped onto my radar by like a person that I knew from the Ruby community because suddenly also they disappeared from the Ruby community. And I'm like, wait. Where did he go? I was like, "What? What are you doing now?" And he's like, "I'm doing Rust now." I was like, "Ah, oh, what? No!" Like I've I've had this before, and this is really cool. So the thing that kind of I was more hesitant with Rust actually because 
their claim, their tagline is the new systems, pro- the systems level programming language. It's like tackles what C and C++ do. I'm like, I have no idea about systems programming. I tried learning C once because of, or like C++ once because I wanted to make a game. And like, I knew that serious games are made in C++. And it was like super horrible and like, uh, nothing works. And like my, the compiler is not helpful. And I was like, uh, systems programming, it's probably not something that I need. So like, I kind of was aware of Rust and like kind of like checking on the, the discourse there, their mailing list thing in and out for a while. But it, I didn't feel like it was necessary. And then that friend who came really involved with Rust in the community helped organize the Rust Fest, which is a conference in Berlin in 2016. And he got me a diversity ticket and he's like, just come check it out. Meet the people. They're really cool. And I was like, okay, uh, go to this conference. And I'm, I don't understand a single word they're talking about because it's all like systems level. Oh, I talked to this. Uh, I don't know, USB hub. I, I don't even know the words. I'm just like, it's kind of like cool things. So it's like, okay, I can talk to like my MIDI keyboard through USB and I can like program this. I'm like, I would never dream about stuff like this. This is too low level for me. It's cool that you can do it, but I don't have the mental capacity of like thinking how this could apply to my life. But then one talk was about, I can't even remember what it was about. But the notion was sort of like, yeah, but you can try and like, it doesn't matter if you fail. It's like, oh God, this is one of these like super simple life lessons that you should know. But unless somebody like tells it to your face, you don't, you don't understand. I was like, okay, so I'm going to try Rust. And what I did was like, I made a little game. And because there were a couple of like, like in, in the Rust ecosystem, they're called crates, like little packages or modules. And it was okay. Like the, the initial learning curve was hard for me at least like it was like i don't understand this the compiler always says no and i don't uh i was kind of like kind of close and like maybe not doing more rust but then i went to a rust meetup it's called hack and learn was just like people who know rust go there and you can ask them i was like hey i want to make a game and it doesn't work and i don't know why and this is like, oh, this is no problem. You have like problems with like your ownership here. So you can only like borrow as reference and just like throwing Rust words out there because they're, it's very confusing in the beginning. But then they took the time to explain to me. I'm like, okay, this sort of makes sense, I guess. But I still was like, okay, it was very hard for me to learn how to make a simple 2D game in Rust. It's cool that it is a binary and it's just like working. I've never had this sort of like, it's all mostly like dynamic languages, like aside from Clojure when you compile it to a jar. But I'm like, ah, oh, there's like this one executable thing and it's kind of cool. Yeah. So yeah, that was like my, my Rust is like, it's okay. I can do stuff, but it only clicked later when I met someone who's, who's working on a web framework in Rust. And I was like, oh, okay. So you could also do like not so low level things. And he's like, you can do everything in Rust, like everything. It's magical. I was like, oh, really? But like, how? And then he, he showed me some of the cool things that I sort of touched upon in my game making, but not really. And those were things like iterators and enums. And I'm like, I know some of these things from Clojure. And it's like, okay, oh, here, here's my, you know, my filter reduce. I see. And then you get like, okay, and you fall down a rabbit hole of like discovering things that are functional in Rust. And as you play with this. You're doing your game, He's show, your friend shows you the web server. What other stuff, you mentioned the enums and map filter reduce, 
Was this your first real typed language too, as well, where you were starting to take some of these ideas? Have you played with some of these ideas? Because well, I think one of the things I've heard about from Rust is, I think Rust calls them traits, where you can say, okay, this thing, it's not quite an interface. It's kind of an interface. It's not quite an interface. It's kind of more of a Haskell type class-ish thing. So as long as you define this stuff, you kind of get this. Were you familiar with some of those ideas already? I could see where it could kind of be like protocols and closure where you can add some stuff at a far level without having played with it. But between the types and between some of these other ideas that Rust has supposedly rolled in from being inspired by some of these other functional languages like Haskell and some of the academic research coming out to help make it safe. What were some of those appealing to you? And was that something new to you or was that something that you had kind of had experience with as well? Those were definitely new to me. I've never like really worked with a statically typed language. So kind of like always like been in like dynamically typed fun land, I guess. So that was, it was probably also one of these things that like makes the, like, at least for me, made the entry to Rust a bit bumpy because it's like, okay, types. So before I don't really, like, I never had to actually pay attention to it. I also, I never did Haskell and a lot of, People who, who know some Haskell and some Rust is like, yeah, they can definitely see where Rust draws some like inspiration from. I don't see this yet. So like Rust is my like first introduction to these things. And also if you read tutorials or like the Rust programming language book, it does explicitly say that like, oh, yeah, so when we implemented uh, traits, so yeah, traits are something like interfaces, but not quite. They were like direct inspiration from Haskell. Also like uh, the way uh, pattern matching works and in Rust and what else? I think uh, that's all I can think of right now. But yeah, some features that are that to Rust feel very substantial. Like this is what do you, how do you do it? Oh, you pattern match and like some of these things are like built into. This is like the Rust way to do things. They were directly influenced by Haskell and OCaml, I think also. And this is kind of cool. And this is also where I think. The little C and C++ that I know, like basically nothing. But I see that where Rust has the advantage of you have this strong system of types that helps you write good and safe code. And this is also where my fascination for writing code that you can, that you can trust. This really appeals to me because once you Rust compiler compiles your code, you can trust it. I was just like, oh, this is so cool. So yeah, types were new to me. I love the system, and I like I like it. I really like it. It took me a long time to wrap my head around it, but I think it's cool. And in closure, you hear a lot of people talking about thinking about the shape of data and data transformations going through your system. You don't think of things your system does. You think of the data and how it gets transformed in a lot of cases. From what I've seen and what I've played with personally, and I've heard other people talk about that, with, the same with types. You think about the shape of your data, but you let the types define that shape and enforce the shape of your data with union types, some types, and all that kind of stuff, and pattern matching. Was that something that you found applies very much the same in Rust when you start to think of Rust as a functional language? Was that something that carried over? What were some, and just other various things that carried over? You said you started to apply some of these ideas back into your Ruby or JavaScript that you write, what were some of those things that you saw align with the things that maybe Rust was inspired from via Haskell and the stuff you did in Clojure when you were thinking functional? Because 
before the call, you said, I thought you were, you said your friends were like, oh, I thought you were all into functional programming. Now you're doing this plus stuff. What were some of those things that you saw in Clojure and then saw how that fits into Rust and said, oh, I like that. And I like how Rust might augment that stuff. That's a very good question. I'm not sure if I, if I have like a straight answer to that, but I think, so I wouldn't say that the shape of data as you have it in, in Clojure, I don't think it necessarily applies to Rust directly. I think this has a lot to do with the way you can transform or unable to transform things in Rust is feels more rigid. So you can't just like flow it some in and then like it just like magically aligns as I feel it does in Clojure a lot of times because it just works so nicely together. Because the I think this is where, where Rust's like more low level things come in where you seem like, okay, you need to know what shape your data is in, otherwise you will probably get into trouble and or the compilers says no at some point. So you it's a bit more overhead to think about things like data and Rust. But I think that overhead pays out. I hope so, <laughs> at least. But the concept of, or like the idea of like, what could I take from Clojure to Rust directly is actually not a lot directly, funnily. A lot of things, so what is, as I said, and like one of the things that I found cool in Clojure is that like, or like other function languages that things are just immutable. There is, you have to work with this and this like makes you actually work with it. And Rust, on the other hand, you can have immutable things, but most of the time, because Rust is not garbage collected or anything, you need to like, and there's also like no such thing as persistent data structures. So if you like were to copy all of the stuff again and again, because you don't want to change it, you will have to wait until it's done like allocating memory. And so it's actually like, okay, if you have large data sets, probably want to mutate them and this is something that's like unthinkable enclosure it's like no so in rust i'm like okay i guess i have to do this now like for it, it works for smaller programs when you know it's like okay it's not going to be i don't have to i know it's like a finite like small set of things that i so i can do my immutable things but i see myself like slip away into like oh i can just mutate them here but then i feel bad because i know better from closure but then Rust is, it doesn't enforce this in this way here. So I'm kind of like, I can't bring this back. I know I should probably do this, but I haven't figured out a way of like how to transfer all of these things back into Rust, sadly. But this is also where I think a lot more people should do this and then tell me where I'm wrong and can improve. Because, yeah, it's like not a lot of people take advantage of the functional aspects of the iterators, the, the maps and reduce, even though they... Now mutate your data, you can still think of them as like a functional immutable way of dealing with your data. And that was one of the things I wasn't sure if anybody had done something like a persistent data structure in Rust, because from hearing people talk about it, C++ has it as well. And I think Rust kind of cribbed it as well, along with C++, is the reference counting that says, well... You can manually allocate, you can manually, and you can say you're going to manually deallocate, you can do some reference counting, you can transfer ownership, you can do all this kind of stuff. So whoever is the responsible one gets to dispose of it, but that could even be in the background. I didn't know if any of these things were kind of reference counting with persistent data structures. So it's like, well, as long as we, we can still do this because something has a reference to it, so it's not gone out of scope and all that stuff. So again, this is all just not having played with Rust, but hearing people say, mm -hmm. we've got some lessons in there. 
what are some of those lessons in functional Rust? Where does Rust fit in in the functional world? What are some of its strong points that you found so far? I think one of the cool things is that Rust has traits that are sort of like interfaces. And I think the one trait that comes with Rust is the iterator trait, which is like how you deal with sequences, basically. And since it's a trait, you can easily, quote unquote, implement iterators on your own types. So if you shape data and you, you have a struct, which is kind of like your your type, and then you say, I want this to have like all the, the benefits of like nice functional way of processing and like maybe data flowing, if you will, you implement the iterator thing. And then you, by implementing basically one function yourself, you have access to all the the zips and the the reduce and the all the stuff and making this like really accessible i think because like you implement a next function which is what happens on each step in your sequence and this is all and i once i i read it it's like okay i cannot just like i need i don't have to use like the rusts built in or baked in in collections to use this and i don't have to necessarily like try to like munch all my data into a shape i can just define my own shape and then have the iterator be my friend and have all this kind of stuff and having this accessible and like kind of easy to implement that was something that's like i don't think that happened by mistake i think somebody thought it would be really cool if people could just like have an easy access to all the functions that we already have in this iterator trait just by implementing this one thing and then just use it so i think somewhere someone said we need to have this because it will make people happy so this is kind of cool. And then like the the other thing is that so Rust has functions and Rust also has anonymous functions and anonymous functions are called closures, which is a little bit different than the definitions of these things in other languages. But then it's just like, yeah, somewhat, but not quite. And Rust just implemented the closures thing because you can't pass around functions as parameters or as arguments or like return them from functions but you can pass closures as parameters to functions. So this was kind of like this, for memory safety reasons, we can't allow this, but then we, we built a little a little construct that is similar, but not quite the same, so you can still work with functions as parameters, and then you can pass it to your, your map or whatever. And this is also a thing where things like, somebody said it would be really, really cool if we had this, because anonymous functions are really useful, and a lot of people like doing nice things for them. So we should definitely implement this. And I think it's, the implementation is quite nicely and it feels very natural to write it. So I think they might not sound like much, but I think these are things that for us, like the people who build Rust said, okay, we need this because if you want to build some sort of useful language for even higher level programmers that don't do much of the lower level stuff, these are things that are really sensible and, and that we should, we should put into it. And then a little bit more on the traits. From what I've heard, and you can kind of confirm or deny this, is those traits sound like the functors in Haskell, in which case you can define something. And so if you have a trait yourself, you can put that on something else that someone else has defined and be able to get that behavior out. And that that sounds like a little bit of the functors from what I've dabbled with in Haskell. And it also Sounds like the protocols in Clojure. Have you messed with the protocols in Clojure? And if so, have you found that the traits kind of map to how the protocols in Clojure work, where you can say, this thing's already been existing, but I want this other 
behavior or protocol and apply that protocol after the fact and get that behavior from that. I've not worked with protocols in Clojure, but from the way you describe it, it sounds pretty much that's how like traits work in Rust. So um, traits, you can define traits over generics. So generics is like, this will be a data type at some point, but we don't know what it is yet. Yeah, and then you define traits and then say, okay, this, whatever type will implement this trait later, you can like extend functionality. There are certain restrictions that I, so I don't think you can like do this with everything that comes from the standard library for security reasons, I assume. But yeah, this would be a way to, to say like, okay, I define a trait and then also like give, give this trait to other people so that they can implement functionality on their own types. Is this what protocols are in Enclosure or functors in Haskell? It sounds similar compared to from my limited dabbling with each of those. Okay. So I was wondering if you had played with it a little more and played with it in Rust to know how those things were going. So it's, at a high level, it sounds like the principles are the same. Maybe there's some differences in explicit usage. So I was just wanting to double check with you if you've been in both the closure world and managed to do some protocols, how they related to traits from your perspective of playing with both, if you've played with both, versus just my little bit of dabbling in one language without actually dabbling in Rust at all. So, And so we've got some time left. I still want to cover, and we can tease your upcoming talk, or at least for anybody who's not going to be able to make it, go tease it for them to watch. But is there any other topics that you think we should bring up or cover about some functional Rust before we kind of tease out some of those ideas that you cover in your talk, because we'll tease out the talk and say, here's some of the other bullet points for those, because by the time this goes out, we might not be spoiling your talk, or we might just be giving enough to tease it for people to come back later. But is there any other things that we think we should mention regarding functional rust before we kind of pitch your talk? No, I think we kind of touched on all the most important things. I think all the rest, but that's the difficulty of explaining some of like advanced concepts in a language without talking about the rest of it of like oh here are enums you define them like structs what are structs and like yeah but i think we're i think we're good so far and was just wanted to check so given functional rust you talk about how functional programming and rust fits together and that's part of your abstract is yeah this idea has some merit what are some of those things that you would tease or tell people that say this fits what are some of the high-level things that we haven't touched about that this fits in well, or some of those other principles besides some enums and putting traits on to be able to take advantage of some of those things that brings the functional aspect? You mentioned immutability is kind of tricky right now. Maybe someone will figure it out, a nice way to do it in the future, but what are some of those things you could tease now that you might be going into more depth in your talk about that says, here's where Rust fits in, here's why Rust fits in, Here's how it fits in functionally. So if you're doing closure or you're doing Haskell or these other things where you might pitch Rust and the advantage of Rust and functional together. So I think the pitch for my talk was also not just like functional programming in Rust, but also like exposing functional programmers to Rust, maybe for the first time, because I was also hesitant at first with like, oh, systems level, I don't, I don't think we can do much here. But then saying, Oh, I think we can, actually. Let me introduce to how certain things work in Rust, like some concepts that are functional. Yeah, we look at things like how... So you come from like a functional language. 
if you come from Haskell, you may already be familiar with the, the type stuff. If you don't, like I wasn't, you might be very confused about the type stuff. And things like what we touched upon, like how does immutability work? Can I work with this? We look at enums. We look at how things like the iterator trait, how would we implement this? We look at closures and how they work in like a nice, yeah, functional style. We do our like little reproduce filter and how it looks in Rust and why it's actually super fast in Rust because Rust has some of the, what they call zero cost abstractions. Whereas like, this is just as fast as if you were like to hand code your little for loop with incrementer and stuff. So I think the Rust ecosystem is still very young. And if there's people who want to like work on some of the, the functional aspects of the language and make it like more accessible to like give low level programmers the opportunity to use the ultimate functional tool chain. Also high level programmers to get some like low level like performance goodies for nothing without like omitting any of the, the things that they, they usually use. I think this would be cool. And ideally this talk would bring these together and say if like functional people do some rust. And then I give this talk to some rust people and they hopefully see that like they should do more functional programming. So this is kind of maybe a pitch or teaser for what I want to do in my talk. And then where do you see Rust fitting in? In a lot of cases, I told, and I mentioned in the pre-call, is Rust considers itself a systems language, and that systems language is more the closer to the hardware language if you need something that's fast. But in a lot of cases, a lot of what people do, Java is said to be slow, but in a lot of cases, the JVM is generally fast enough, so might as well do it in Clojure or I've heard some Haskell OCaml people say, yeah, well, Haskell OCaml are a systems language too. They're just almost as fast as C or C++, at least in some cases. You have larger systems, think like system, system, as in like a bunch of different things that are operating together that people call Erlang a systems language, more focused on the plural of systems, so the orchestration. You've got all these other languages out there. At what point, if you played with Clojure some, you've played with Rust, you've even done JavaScript and Node, where do you personally see Rust's sweet spot as that you say, okay, given the languages I played with, I played with Lua, and that has some things like Nginx and Redis and some of these other things, but I could probably also do a plugin with Rust, considering that compiles down to a binary as well. Where do you draw some of these lines in your head that says, given the things I played with, given the things I know, where do you put Rust and when would you go pick up Rust and say, I like functional programming and whether Rust has it now or not, this is that sweet spot of Rust and this is when I would pick it up versus any of these other languages that I've made and playing with. When do I pick up Rust? I would say right now, or like generally, if you want to learn, if you think you need to learn C or C++, don't do that, learn Rust. This is kind of like the, it's still the, I think it's the new go-to for everything that's low level. And I think it's from the ecosystem and tooling where it's the most mature right now. And I, this is kind of like my personal hoping that the, since Rust can have a lot of like higher level features that, you know, once you're like give up on, on dynamic types, you can easily build web frameworks and like all of these like things that I think a lot about web stuff because this is what I've been doing all my life basically that Rust could fill in this niche as well of like, I don't do like my Ruby on Rails. It's my Rust framework. And I think in this case, the compiling down to a binary is especially nice because 
deploying a single binary is the nicest thing ever. But yeah, I think from the system's point of view, Rust is like the thing today. From the web point of view, not quite, but it's getting there. There's also the the ops tooling thing. So a couple of people would like that I know would like Rust to take the place that Golang has, which has nothing to do with functional programming, but like more of the the networking and and all of these things. Where Rust is also growing, but it's also not there yet. But yeah, this is also something like I kind of. If Rust were like a super functional language, I would kind of like have Rust everywhere, kind of, because it's nice. I'm also prepared to give up a lot of things to be able to like code Rust. I think on the Rust mailing list, somebody recently asked how hard it would be to implement a closure onto Rust. And I'm like, oh my God, so I could, I could write closure and then like compiles to binary. I'm like, oh, this would be so cool. But yeah, so there's a lot of like ideas flying around. But yeah, I think Rust could be a lot of things at this point. It's still, it's still early, but I think if people get involved, like the community is very active and ideas are like pitching ideas and working on ideas is very much the high traffic discussions everywhere. So that is possible. And it's always interesting to see how people partition their languages as tools to say, okay, so if I need to do something here, what advantages are? So, and you kind of touched on even would rather be doing a web server in Rust over Ruby and Rails because you want those types. Which sounded like you really like the type system and then getting away from some of that dynamic types, but you also kind of like the idea of having a closure on Rust. So I guess as we sum up, where do you go back and forth between these types and the dynamic stuff? Is there some place that you find that those worlds fit for you where, okay, in this case, I'm probably want the upfront work of thinking about that types that I have to do in Rust, as you said, versus the, I have a little bit more of the dynamic stuff, or is it just other features of closure that would be awesome, regardless of the fact that you're being in dynamic and you're now able to take advantage of some of these other, Is it, maybe it's the code as data side of closure. Where do you draw those lines of like, well, I still like closure, and if I had a closure on Rust, that would be awesome, versus the type system and some of that stuff. So I guess kind of wrapping up, where are you falling there? That's that's a difficult question because I really like closure, but I also really like the types. I think what would be cool is the safety of the type system to like always have my back. But then I do think that the code is data thing and closure is just something. Maybe it's just because it's a Lisp. It's like ah, it's just so nice. I want to write. I kind of always want to write Lisp, but also with types. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to get into this. This sounds like a like a flame war. Like starting to happen, but yeah, both are good things. I like both things. Yeah, and the cool thing is that we have like all these things to like play around with and use them all. So I guess that's my my end word. And we mentioned Lambda Days coming up. So if anybody catches this episode, hopefully right before it goes out. Hopefully this episode will go out right before Lambda Days. You'll be there. Are there any other places that you're going to be around? Either relatively locally or regionally or any of the conferences you're going to be going to? Where can people find you in person and say, hey, find out more about what you're doing, pick your brain some more maybe, or find you online and follow along and see what you keep doing and how you keep playing back and forth with these, or if you start to pick up even another language and say, now I've done Clojure, now I've done Rust, and now I'm going off and doing something else, and here's some of the other stuff that excites me. So, 
where can people find you in person and online to follow along and keep up to date? So after Lambda Days, I'm going straight to Closure D, which is Germany's Closure Conference. And I will hopefully also make it to Rustfest in Paris in May, which is like my conference planning so far. And generally in Berlin, I'm hanging out at the, like the meetup scene is quite, quite active. So if there's a Rust meetup happening, I will be there. If there's a closure meetup happening and I'm not sick, which I was just like two days ago, I'm usually there. Online, I, I kind of like, I'm not on Twitter. So a lot of people think that I don't exist. So I am on Mastodon though, which is an alternative. You can, I'm, I'm Liz at toot.cat for funny things, and you can always stalk my GitHub, which is listless, L-I-S, L-I-S, where I I just push all of my whatever I write onto there. And I never, like, if you don't mention me in, in tickets, I will not respond, because I just don't see it, because I have, like, I don't know, a hundred repros with random stuff. But I think it's a very good good point to, like, see what I actually do. Also, if I ever have time, I will create a blog. Because as, as as every developer out there, I think I should maybe write a blog. But then it goes with like building a blog first, because we can't just we can't just use WordPress. No, we have to like build our own. Yeah, but this is usually where you find me. Yeah, I think that's it. Random mailing lists probably as well. But and that sounds good. And I'm assuming you've stopped going to the Ruby meetup for a while, so you don't pick up any more languages. <laughs> since you didn't mention the Ruby meetup, but uh. There's not a lot of Ruby people left at this point. <laughs> so I think that's it on our side. And then we mentioned where you can people can find you, where people to follow along, mainly GitHub, maybe Mastodon online. Is there any last things you'd like to mention or point people to, either your projects as references or other things that you want people to check out since we got you here? Is there any other things that you say, hey, aside from go check out Rust and see where Rust might fit in and and you're that encouragement that you said you're trying to bridge that gap between the functional people and the Rust people. Is there any other things you have for the audience today while you got us here? Maybe one block for Closure Bridge again, because it made a big difference to me to like have someone like explain a language that apparently seems very inaccessible to a lot of people. And I don't think that's true. And I think Closure is a great language. And with the Closure Bridge, you can like help people get into Closure, which is very cool. And there's a lot of resources online. And on closurebridge-berlin.org, I think is our website, we have a bunch of resources on how you get, can get started with a workshop near you. So if you ever feel like you have enough time to spend on stuff, spend it on this. It sounds like a great call to action and things to check out. And I've heard other things have started taking that bridge, like Closure's taking it from Ruby Bridge efforts and Melissa Bridges. And I probably would assume that Oh, Rust Bridge or Haskell Bridge or O'Camel Bridge or any other bridge would be a good starting point. Yeah. Well, I think that's it for us. So I'll make sure to get all these references that you've talked about and the links that you are available on in the show notes. So people listening can always go back and find out more. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belchie for the logo. And once again, thank you, Lisa, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. It was great to see and hear about always what makes people excited about languages and get a little bit more into why Rust and where Rust fits in. Because as I mentioned in the episode and before, I haven't really figured out for myself 
where Rust would fit in and for it to take up enough priority amongst all the other languages I kind of poke and prod and try and take lessons from off and on and dabble in. And it's nice to be able to hear some of these ideas from people who've actually played with languages that I've only really heard about. So thanks for taking your time to join me. It was a real pleasure talking with you and we'll have to probably get you on in the future to catch up with you more and see what else you've been doing in the meantime. So thank you for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.